This year, Peloton is gifting you their best offer of the season. Get up to $300 off accessories when you purchase a Peloton bike, Bike Plus, or Tread. Shop from a variety of accessories such as cycling shoes, a heart rate monitor, and more. Whether you have 10 minutes to spare for a strength class or 30 minutes for a running or cycling class, there's a workout that works for you with music that is truly iconic. So don't miss out on Peloton's best offer of the season. Visit OnePeloton.com to learn more. All access membership separate. Offer starts November 14th and ends November 28th. Cannot be combined with other offers. See additional terms at OnePeloton.com. Hi, my name is Rivka. And together with Wikipedia, I'll help you fall asleep. Get cozy and relax. I'll read out loud to you. Today, Martin Luther King Jr. And about the change he made in American history. Martin Luther King Jr. was an American Baptist minister and activist who became the most visible spokesman and leader in the American Civil Rights Movement from 1955 until his assassination in 1968. King advanced civil rights through nonviolence and civil disobedience, inspired by his Christian beliefs and the nonviolent activism of Mahatma Gandhi. He was the son of early civil rights activist and minister Martin Luther King, Sr., King participated in and led marches for blacks' right to vote, desegregation, labor rights, and other basic civil rights. King led the 1955 Montgomery bus boycott and later became the first president of the Southern Christian Leadership Conference. As president of the SCLC, he led the unsuccessful Albany Movement in Albany, Georgia and helped organize some of the nonviolent 1963 protests in Birmingham, Alabama. King helped organize the 1963 March on Washington, where he delivered his famous I Have a Dream speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial. The SCLC put into practice the tactics of nonviolent protest with some success, by strategically choosing the methods and places in which the protests were carried out. There were several dramatic standoffs with segregationist authorities, who sometimes turned violent. Federal Bureau of Investigation Director J. Edgar Hoover considered King a radical and made him an object of the FBI's COINTELPRO from 1963 forward. FBI agents investigated him for possible communist ties, recorded his extramarital affairs, and reported on them to government officials. And, in 1964, mailed King a threatening anonymous letter, which he interpreted as an attempt to make him commit suicide. On October 14, 1964, King won the Nobel Peace Prize for combating racial inequality through nonviolent resistance. In 1965, he helped organize two of the three Selma to Montgomery marches. In his final years, he expanded his focus to include opposition towards poverty, 
capitalism, and the Vietnam War. In 1968, King was planning a national occupation of Washington, D.C., to be called the Poor People's Campaign, when he was assassinated on April 4th in Memphis, Tennessee. Early Life and Education At his childhood home, King and his two siblings would read aloud the Bible as instructed by their father. After dinners there, King's grandmother Jenny, who he affectionately referred to as Mama, would tell lively stories from the Bible to her grandchildren. King's father would regularly use whippings to discipline his children. At times, King Sr. would also have his children whip each other. King's father later remarked, He was the most peculiar child whenever you whipped him. He'd stand there, and the tears would run down, and he'd never cry. Once, when King witnessed his brother A.D. emotionally upset his sister Christine, he took a telephone and knocked out A.D. with it. When he and his brother were playing at their home, A.D. slid from a banister and hit into their grandmother Jenny, causing her to fall down unresponsive. King, believing her dead, blamed himself and attempted suicide by jumping from a second-story window. Upon hearing that his grandmother was alive, King rose and left the ground where he had fallen. King became friends with a white boy whose father owned a business across the street from his family's home. In September 1935, when the boys were about six years old, they started school. King had to attend a school for black children, Young Street Elementary School, while his close playmate went to a separate school for white children only. Soon afterwards, the parents of the white boy stopped allowing King to play with their son, stating to him, quote, We are white and you are colored. End quote. When King relayed the happenings to his parents, they had a long discussion with him about the history of slavery and racism in America. Upon learning of the hatred, violence, and oppression that black people had faced in the U.S., King would later state that he was, quote, determined to hate every white person, end quote. His parents instructed him that it was his Christian duty to love everyone. King witnessed his father stand up against segregation and various forms of discrimination. Once, when stopped by a police officer who referred to King Sr. as boy, King's father responded sharply, that King was a boy, but he was a man. When King's father took him to a shoe store in downtown Atlanta, the clerk told them they needed to sit in the back. King's father refused, stating, quote, We'll either buy shoes sitting here, or we won't buy shoes at all, end quote, before taking King and leaving the store. He told King afterward, quote, I don't care how long I have to live with this system. I will never accept it, end quote. In 1936, King's father led hundreds of African Americans in a civil rights march to the city hall in Atlanta, 
to protest voting rights discrimination. King later remarked that King Sr. was a, quote, real father, end quote, to him. King memorized and sang hymns and stated verses from the Bible by the time he was five years old. Over the next year, he began to go to church events with his mother and sing hymns while she played piano. His favorite hymn to sing was, I want to be more and more like Jesus. He moved attendees with his singing. King later became a member of the junior choir in his church. King enjoyed opera and played the piano. As he grew up, King garnered a large vocabulary from reading dictionaries and consistently used his expanding lexicon. He got into physical altercations with boys from his neighborhood, but oftentimes used his knowledge of words to stymie fights. King showed a lack of interest in grammar and spelling, a trait which he carried throughout his life. In 1939, King sang as a member of his church choir in slave costume for the all-white audience at the Atlanta premiere of the film Gone with the Wind. In September 1940, at the age of 12, King was enrolled at the Atlanta University Laboratory School for the seventh grade. While there, King took violin and piano lessons and showed keen interest in his history and English classes. On May 18, 1941, when King had snuck away from studying at home to watch a parade, King was informed that something had happened to his maternal grandmother. Upon returning home, he found out that she had suffered a heart attack and died while being transported to the hospital. He took the death very hard and believed that his deception of going to see the parade may have been responsible for God taking her. King jumped out of a second-story window at his home, but again survived an attempt to kill himself. His father instructed him in his bedroom that King should not blame himself for her death, and that she had been called home to God as part of God's plan, which could not be changed. King struggled with this, and could not fully believe that his parents knew where his grandmother had gone. Shortly thereafter, King's father decided to move the family to a two-story brick home on a hill that overlooked downtown Atlanta. Adolescence In his adolescent years, he initially felt resentment against whites due to the racial humiliation that he and his family and his neighbors often had to endure in the segregated South. In 1942, when King was 13 years old, he became the youngest assistant manager of a newspaper delivery station for the Atlanta Journal. That year, King skipped the ninth grade and was enrolled in Booker T. Washington High School, where he maintained a B-plus average. The high school was the only one in the city for African-American students. It had been formed after local black leaders, including King's grandfather, Williams, urged the city government of Atlanta to create it. While King was brought up in a Baptist home, 
King grew skeptical of some of Christianity's claims as he entered adolescence. He began to question the literalist teachings preached at his father's church. At the age of 13, he denied the bodily resurrection of Jesus during Sunday school. King has stated that he found himself unable to identify with the emotional displays and gestures from congregants frequent at his church, and doubted if he would ever attain personal satisfaction from religion. He stated later of this point in his life, quote, Doubts began to spring forth unrelentingly, end quote. In high school, King became known for his public speaking ability, with a voice which had grown into an orotund baritone. He proceeded to join the school's debate team. King continued to be most drawn to history and English, and chose English and sociology to be his main subjects while at the school. King maintained an abundant vocabulary, but he relied on his sister Christine to help him with his spelling while King assisted her with math. They studied in this manner routinely until Christine's graduation from high school. King also developed an interest in fashion, commonly adorning himself in well-polished patent leather shoes and tweed suits, which gained him the nickname Tweed or Tweedy among his friends. He further grew a liking for flirting with girls and dancing. His brother A.D. later remarked, quote, He kept flitting from chick to chick, and I decided I couldn't keep up with him. Especially since he was crazy about dances, and just about the best jitterbug in town. End quote. On April 13, 1944, in his junior year, King gave his first public speech during an oratorical contest, sponsored by the Improved Benevolent and Protective Order of Elks of the World in Dublin, Georgia. In his speech, he stated, quote, Black America still wears chains. The finest Negro is at the mercy of the meanest white man. Even winners of our highest honors face the class color bar. End quote. King was selected as the winner of the contest. On the ride home to Atlanta by bus, he and his teacher were ordered by the driver to stand so that white passengers could sit down. The driver of the bus called King a, quote, black son of a bitch, end quote. King initially refused but complied after his teacher told him that he would be breaking the law if he did not follow the directions of the driver. As all the seats were occupied, he and his teacher were forced to stand on the rest of the drive back to Atlanta. Later, King wrote of the incident, saying, quote, That night will never leave my memory. It was the angriest I have ever been in my life. End quote. Morehouse College. During King's junior year in high school, Morehouse College, an all-male historically black college, which King's father and maternal grandfather had attended, began accepting high school juniors who passed the school's entrance examination. As World War II was underway, 
many black college students had been enlisted in the war, decreasing the numbers of students at Morehouse College. So the university aimed to increase their student numbers by allowing junior high school students to apply. In 1944, at the age of 15, King passed the entrance examination and was enrolled at the university for the school season that autumn. In the summer before King started his freshman year at Morehouse, he boarded a train with his friend Emmett Weasel Proctor and a group of other Morehouse College students to work in Simsbury, Connecticut at the tobacco farm of Coleman Brothers Tobacco. This was King's first trip outside of the segregated South into the integrated North. In a June 1944 letter to his father, King wrote about the differences that struck him between the two parts of the country. Quote, On our way here we saw some things I had never anticipated to see. After we passed Washington, there was no discrimination at all. The white people here are very nice. We go to any place we want and sit anywhere we want to. End quote. The students worked at the farm to be able to provide for their educational costs at Morehouse College, as the farm had partnered with the college to allot their salaries toward the university's tuition, housing, and other fees. On weekdays, King and the other students worked in the fields, picking tobacco from 7 a.m. till at least 5 p.m., and during temperatures above 100 degrees Fahrenheit to earn roughly four U.S. dollars per day. On Friday evenings, King and the other students visited downtown Simsbury to get milkshakes and watch movies, and on Saturdays they would travel to Hartford, Connecticut to see theater performances, shop, and eat in restaurants, while each Sunday they would go to Hartford to attend church services at a church filled with white congregants. King wrote to his parents about the lack of segregation in Connecticut, relaying how he was amazed they could go to, quote, one of the finest restaurants in Hartford, end quote, and that, quote, Negroes and whites go to the same church, end quote. He played freshman football there. The summer before his last year at Morehouse, in 1947, the 18-year-old king chose to enter the ministry. Throughout his time in college, King studied under the mentorship of its president, Baptist minister Benjamin Mays, who he would later credit with being his spiritual mentor. King had concluded that the church offered the most assuring way to answer, quote, an inner urge to serve humanity, end quote. His inner urge had begun developing, and he made peace with the Baptist Church, as he believed he would be a, quote, rational minister, end quote, with sermons that were a, quote, respectful force for ideas, even social protest, end quote. King graduated from Morehouse with a Bachelor of Arts in Sociology in 1948, aged 19. Montgomery Bus Boycott In March 1955, Claudette Colvin, a 15-year-old black schoolgirl in Montgomery, 
refused to give up her bus seat to a white man in violation of Jim Crow laws, local laws in the southern United States that enforced racial segregation. King was on the committee from the Birmingham African American community that looked into the case. E.D. Nixon and Clifford Durr decided to wait for a better case to pursue because the incident involved a minor. Nine months later, on December 1, 1955, a similar incident occurred when Rosa Parks was arrested for refusing to give up her seat on a city bus. The two incidents led to the Montgomery bus boycott, which was urged and planned by Nixon and led by King. King was in his twenties and had just taken up his clerical role. The other ministers asked him to take a leadership role simply because his relative newness to community leadership made it easier for him to speak out. King was hesitant about taking the role, but decided to do so if no one else wanted it. The boycott lasted 385 days, and the situation became so tense that King's house was bombed. King was arrested and jailed during this campaign, which overnight drew attention of national media and greatly increased King's public stature. The controversy ended when the United States District Court issued a ruling in Browder v. Gale that prohibited racial segregation on all Montgomery public buses. Blacks resumed riding the buses again, and were able to sit in the front with full legal authorization. King's role in the bus boycott transformed him into a national figure and the best-known spokesman of the civil rights movement. The Common Society Harry Watchell joined King's legal advisor Clarence B. Jones in defending four ministers of the SCLC in the libel case New York Times Company v. Sullivan. The case was litigated in reference to the newspaper advertisement Heed Their Rising Voices. Watchell founded a tax-exempt fund to cover the suit's expenses and assist the nonviolent civil rights movement through a more effective means of fundraising. The organization was named the Gandhi Society for Human Rights. King served as honorary president for the group. He was displeased with the pace that President Kennedy was using to address the issue of segregation. In 1962, King and the Gandhi Society produced a document that called on the president to follow in the footsteps of Abraham Lincoln and issue an executive order to deliver a blow for civil rights as a kind of second emancipation proclamation. Kennedy did not execute the order. The FBI was under written directive from Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy when it began tapping King's telephone line in the fall of 1963. Kennedy was concerned that public allegations of communists in the SCLC would derail the administration's civil rights initiatives. He warned King to discontinue these associations and later felt compelled to issue the written directive that authorized the FBI to wiretap King and other SCLC leaders. FBI Director J. Edgar Hoover feared the civil rights movement, 
and investigated the allegations of communist infiltration. When no evidence emerged to support this, the FBI used the incidental details caught on tape over the next five years in attempts to force King out of his leadership position in the COINTELPRO program. King believed that organized, nonviolent protest against the system of Southern segregation known as Jim Crow laws would lead to extensive media coverage of the struggle for black equality and voting rights. Journalistic accounts and televised footage of the daily deprivation and indignities suffered by Southern blacks and of segregationist violence and harassments of civil rights workers and marchers produced a wave of sympathetic public opinion that convinced the majority of Americans that the civil rights movement was the most important issue in American politics in the early 1960s. King organized and led marches for blacks' right to vote, desegregation, labor rights, and other basic civil rights. Most of these rights were successfully enacted into law of the United States, with the passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964 and the 1965 Voting Rights Act. The SCLC put into practice the tactics of nonviolent protest with great success by strategically choosing the methods and places in which protests were carried out. There were often dramatic standoffs with segregationist authorities, who sometimes turned violent. Survived Knife Attack On September 20, 1958, King was signing copies of his book, Stride Toward Freedom, in Bloomstein's department store in Harlem, when he narrowly escaped death. Isola Curry, a mentally ill black woman who thought that King was conspiring against her with communists, stabbed him in the chest with a letter opener which nearly impinged on the aorta. King received first aid by police officers Al Howard and Philip Romano. King underwent emergency surgery with three doctors, Aubrey de Lambert Maynard, Emile Naclerio, and John W.V. Cordes. He remained hospitalized for several weeks. Curry was later found mentally incompetent to stand trial. I have a dream. King delivered a 17-minute speech, later known as I Have a Dream. In the speech's most famous passage, in which he departed from his prepared text, possibly at the prompting of Mahalia Jackson, who shouted behind him, Tell them about the dream. King said, I say to you today, my friends, so even though we face the difficulties of today and tomorrow, I still have a dream. It is a dream deeply rooted in the American dream. I have a dream that one day this nation will rise up and live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal. I have a dream that one day, on the red hills of Georgia, the sons of former slaves 
and the sons of former slave owners will be able to sit down together at the table of brotherhood. I have a dream that one day, even the state of Mississippi, a state sweltering with the heat of injustice, sweltering with the heat of oppression, will be transformed into an oasis of freedom and justice. I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day down in Alabama, with its vicious racists, with its governor having his lips dripping with the words of interposition and nullification, one day, right there in Alabama, little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. I have a dream came to be regarded as one of the finest speeches in the history of American oratory. The march, and especially King's speech, helped put civil rights at the top of the agenda of reformers in the United States and facilitated passage of the Civil Rights Act of 1964. The original typewritten copy of the speech, including King's handwritten notes on it, was discovered in 1984 to be in the hands of George Raveling, the first African-American basketball coach of the University of Iowa. In 1963, Raveling, then 26 years old, was standing near the podium and immediately after the oration, impulsively asked King if he could have his copy of the speech, and he got it. Assassination On March 29, 1968, King went to Memphis, Tennessee, in support of the Black Sanitary Public Works employees, who were represented by AFSCME Local 1733. The workers had been on strike since March 12th for higher wages and better treatment. In one incident, black street repairmen received pay for two hours when they were sent home because of bad weather, but white employees were paid for the full day. On April 3rd, King addressed a rally and delivered his I've Been to the Mountaintop address at Mason Temple the world headquarters of the Church of God in Christ. King's flight to Memphis had been delayed by a bomb threat against his plane. In the prophetic peroration of the last speech of his life, in reference to the bomb threat, King said the following, And then I got to Memphis, and some began to say the threats or talk about the threats that were out. What would happen to me from some of our sick white brothers? Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead, 
But it doesn't matter with me now. Because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over. And I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you. But I want you to know tonight that we, as a people, will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. Mine eyes have seen the glory and the coming of the Lord. King was booked in room 306 at the Lorraine Motel in Memphis. Ralph Abernathy, who was present at the assassination, testified to the United States House Select Committee on Assassinations that King and his entourage stayed at room 306 so often that it was known as the King Abernathy Suite. According to Jesse Jackson, who was present, King's last words on the balcony before his assassination were spoken to musician Ben Branch, who was scheduled to perform that night at an event King was attending. Quote, Ben, make sure you play Take My Hand, Precious Lord, in the meeting tonight. Play it real pretty. End quote. King was fatally shot by James Earl Ray at 6.01 p.m. Thursday, April 4th, 1968, as he stood on the motel's second-floor balcony. The bullet entered through his right cheek, smashing his jaw, then traveled down his spinal cord before lodging in his shoulder. Abernathy heard the shot from inside the motel room and ran to the balcony to find King on the floor. Jackson stated after the shooting that he cradled King's head as King lay on the balcony, but this account was disputed by other colleagues of King. Jackson later changed his statement to say that he had reached out for King. After emergency chest surgery, King died at St. Joseph's Hospital at 7.05 p.m. According to biographer Taylor Branch, King's autopsy revealed that though only 39 years old, he, quote, had the heart of a 60-year-old, end quote, which Branch attributed to the stress of 13 years in the civil rights movement. King was initially interred in Southview Cemetery in South Atlanta, but in 1977, his remains were transferred to a tomb on the site of the Martin Luther King Jr. National Historical Park. Aftermath His death was followed by riots in many U.S. cities. Allegations that James Earl Ray, the man convicted of killing King, had been framed or acted in concert with government agents persisted for decades after the shooting. 
King was posthumously awarded the Presidential Medal of Freedom in 1977 and the Congregational Gold Medal in 2003. Martin Luther King Jr. Day was established as a holiday in cities and states throughout the United States beginning in 1971. The holiday was enacted at the federal level by legislation signed by President Ronald Reagan in 1986. Hundreds of streets in the U.S. have been renamed in his honor, and the most populous county in Washington state was rededicated for him. The Martin Luther King Jr. Memorial on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. was dedicated in 2011. Hey, still awake? If you like this podcast, please hit subscribe and leave a rating in your podcast app. The podcast is available under Creative Commons Attribution. This podcast is produced and edited by Schönlein Media, read by me, Rivka.